you can actually get to fully negative fuels, which means you can still keep producing all of your fossil fuels and whoever's then combusting the biofuel is doing even better and offsetting someone else's fossil fuel. Welcome to It's a Material World, the show that uncovers why material science will change the world with your hosts, Pranith Upadhyay and Tom Miller. In today's episode, Biofuels and Blockchain, Beyond the World of Fossil Fuels. So Karen, thank you so much for joining us today. So first, tell us a little bit about yourself, where you work, uh, what you do, and why your work is important to you and what its impact is. Sure. Well, thanks for having me join. So my name is Karen O'Brien. I work for Jivo. We are an advanced renewable fuels producer based in the U.S. We have headquarters in Colorado and a plant that's operating in Laverne, Minnesota. We produce renewable hydrocarbons. So iso-octane and jet fuel are some of the main ones that we produce today. We use corn. So we are very focused on the agricultural side of producing those feedstocks to then convert to those hydrocarbon fuels. And we track it all the way through field to wing, so to speak, depending on if it's jet fuel and then to tank if it's isooctane, so renewable gasoline. And we have a blockchain technology that tracks that fuel. And then my background specifically is a chemical engineering background and a biochemical engineering background as well. So more so on the process side. And then I started working more onto the sustainability side because sustainability is a process and understanding all of those different metrics is very helpful. So you mentioned you're passionate about reducing transportation greenhouse gas emissions as well as agriculture greenhouse gas emissions, kind of both of those. So I was wondering how did that passion develop and currently what steps are being taken to address those issues? Well, so globally, transportation emissions are like 14% of total GHG emissions, whereas agriculture can be like 24%. So if you're willing to deal with both of those issues at once, you have a lot more of the pie to play with, so to speak. It means you have a lot more malleability to affect change in the greater world, which is what made me passionate about it, especially when we look at just aviation fuel. Those emissions are maybe 2% of those global emissions. And that doesn't seem like a huge place to affect change. So I'd rather have more places Mm. to deal with stuff. So I guess what steps are currently being taken in terms of what is Jivo doing? What are other companies doing right now? So Jivo specifically, we do produce a sustainable corn that is then converted into the jet fuel and hydrocarbons. So all of those carbon atoms that are coming into the corn are taken into the plant through photosynthesis. So they were in the atmosphere before we took them in using the plants to take them in. And then when you burn the fuel, they go back into the atmosphere. So you have a closed loop cycle. You're not producing more carbon into the atmosphere every time you burn those hydrocarbons. You initially took it from the atmosphere and then it goes back when you burn it. So it's very different from you know, burning up the dead dinosaurs that you're pulling from the ground that were sequestered <laughs> there. It's really, yeah, it's a closed loop that way. You're not relying on yeah, dead dinosaurs. That's an interesting point. We'll get talking a little bit more about that cycle a little bit later. But before we get into that, just give us a little bit of a high-level overview of the bioenergy space, broadly speaking. You know, we were doing a little bit of research on our end ahead of this, and there seems to be an emphasis on biomass, biofuel, and biogas. And how do these contribute to a future with sustainable fuel? And what exactly are biomass, biofuel, and biogas? 
how do they play into that? So biomass is pretty much anything that's grown. So it can be corn, it can be uh, soybeans, if you're talking renewable diesel, it can be cellulosic things like tree trimmings or the waste from pulp manufacturing. And then biofuel is something made from a biomass. So some kind of biological carbon that's converted into a fuel to use. So that can be basic ethanol, that can be jet fuel, that can be renewable diesel. There's a lot of different fuels that can be produced that way. And then when you're talking about biogases, usually that's coming from some kind of waste source. So manure can be anaerobically digested to produce biomethane that is a biogas. So that biomethane is displacing all of your natural gas requirements that someone has. You can produce it from landfill gas. It's just basic methane that's coming from a biological source. And then you have how many different biofuel producers who all play in those different categories. So you have maybe three or four renewable sustainable aviation fuel producers today. There's really not that many yet. But then if you start looking at renewable diesel and people using like used cooking oil or soybeans to produce that, you have a ton of players. You have more than 100 companies doing that. It's kind of basic refining knowledge, so it doesn't take a whole lot of new technology to be able to do that conversion. So we were reading through Jivo's website, and I saw that biofuels allow you know the aviation industry to use the same equipment and fuel while reducing their carbon footprint. And so I was wondering if you could talk more about that and you know how are they exactly replacing current petroleum-based products? Right. So when you think of the aviation industry, as I'm sure you guys have flown before, a lot of those planes are really old. The <laughs> basic like commercial airplane has about a 25-year lifespan and people aren't just going to go buy a bunch of new electric planes. That's simply not a feasible cost for someone like <laughs> United or Delta or whoever. It's not, it's just not feasible. So, and I mean, they're consistently buying new planes every year and that new plane has a 25 year lifespan about. So unless you're literally going to scrap it all and say that you're going to start all of these new planes immediately, you need yeah. some kind of fuel that's a drop in fuel. So you can use it today with the planes you have. You also have some kind of certain technical limits today on using hydrogen in planes or electricity. Batteries are very heavy. Uh, it kind of makes physics hard for a plane. So even if you could produce enough renewable electricity to put into all of your planes, having batteries in said planes for long distance flights is not probable in the near future. So you need some kind of fuel that works today. Sustainable aviation fuel can do that directly displacing today's petroleum jet fuel. Yeah, so Tom and I are actually just recently finished up an internship at GE Aviation. So we've been learning a lot about engines and, you know, specific fuel consumption. And throughout the whole internship, it was pretty clear that the vast majority of the students were interested in the development of green engines and hybrid engines and stuff like that. So there seems to be an emphasis on sustainability in the aviation industry and especially within our age demographic. Yeah, I think a lot more people are talking about now, which is great. And I think those technologies will develop in the future. But I would also like to be able to make change today and not just keep hoping that there will right. be change in the future. Absolutely. I completely agree with that. And not only on the fuel side of it, but also on the, you know, shifting gears a little bit to the sustainable farming standpoint. So Jivo emphasizes that it, it all begins with the soil that, in quote, healthy soil enables renewable, sustainable, carbon raw materials, end quote. Uh, can you walk us through the process and talk about how improving 
the soil leads to the development of more sustainable carbon raw materials. Yeah, so when you start looking at regenerative agriculture and really focusing on what makes soil healthy and what makes it have higher yields and have better runoff effects so that you're not wasting the things that you do put on the field, you can actually get to a place where the corn you're growing or whatever it is you're growing can actually sequester more carbon than what you're pulling off when you're pulling the corn off to produce feed for your animals or the waste starches for your fuels. So there's a really interesting play in biofuel producers in that if we can show value to our farmers in them switching to those better farming practices, we can actually use those fuels and get the carbon benefits of even a negative carbon corn and push that through to our final fuel where there are real carbon markets. And the carbon markets for agriculture today are pretty low value. So there's not a lot of incentive for a farmer to change their practices if they've been doing that for you know, 50 years or whatever they've been doing. So there, there has to be some kind of catalyst to change for the farmer. And opening up the biofuel markets for agriculture can actually start to make that incentive real to them and really affect change with what they do, which for them is good because most of the farmers we know, they're trying to keep those farms for their families and continuously they got the farms from their grandparents and so on and so forth, especially in the U.S. That's kind of how it works. So they want that land to work for them as long as possible, which means you need to have healthy soils and you need to keep building the carbon in the soils to be able to have fertile land. So just to follow up on that a little bit, when you say carbon market, especially as it pertains to the agriculture industry, what do you mean by that term carbon market? Yes, there are a lot of different carbon markets in the world. Biofuels kind of have their separate carbon markets. And then a lot of your agriculture, like forestry, they have other carbon markets and they don't always interchange with each other. So there's one group called Nori that has a carbon market that's associated with better farming practices and such. And they're like $15 per metric ton of CO2. Whereas if you look at like California's LCFS market, so the low carbon fuel standard market, you're talking about like $210 per metric ton of CO2. But it's the same CO2. So if you can connect your two markets, you then open up a 210 market compared to a 15 market. And that's a lot more incentive for anyone. So that's beneficial to the farmer because they then have that access, which they wouldn't always have without a biofuel producer to bridge the gap, so to speak. So who sets that rate of $210 per metric ton? They're market driven. So the California LCFS, if you have a ton of fuels that are really low carbon score, so you have very low carbon score fuels, but you don't have a ton of them, your market will be high value. If you have a ton of fuels that have the low value carbon score, then your value for that carbon will go down. It's economics of supply and demand of how many fuels do you have that are at a low carbon value and how many offsets do your applicated parties and such have to buy? So if they have to buy 50 and there's only 20, those 20 are going to be very high value because there's only 20 and people are competing. I was wondering, you know, with those supply and demand, like, is there ever a cap? Like how exactly is that market driven? Because, you know, when it, when it comes to limiting greenhouse gas emissions, carbon, carbon dioxide, there should, I feel like, be a cap or, you know, some net effect. Yeah, there is a cap in the California LCFS that's determined by the California Air Resources Board. That changes every year so that theoretically your obligated parties can't get into a market where it's unfeasible for them to pay for it. It's funny you mentioned Nori, actually, because I'm a big fan of their podcast. I don't know if you've listened to it, but they have a whole podcast where they delve into a number of sustainability issues. And Mm -hmm. so that was 
part of the reason why going into this episode. It was definitely a topic I wanted to bring to our show too for expressly that purpose. So it's funny to, to see that connection there. So, you know, transitioning more to the material science standpoint, because that is the general purpose of our podcast, I wanted to ask you what is the role of material science, materials engineering in the development of more sustainable, renewable energy solutions? And, you know, how can the carbon footprint of manufacturing renewable energy products be minimized? Yeah, so I think there are a lot of opportunities for choosing more sustainable sources in general. So, I mean, you're always going to be looking for certain elements to make stuff. Generally, mm-hmm. carbon is a pretty high value one because we make a lot of stuff out of carbon. So if you start thinking about really where that carbon's coming from, whether it's waste plastics or corn or tree trimmings or yard waste from grass trimmings, you can really start to see how you can build a society globally, figure out a way to really draw on carbon sources that can help the environment overall and people overall. There's a lot of different things in sustainability that people don't always think about, like human rights and water rights, labor rights, different social metrics that people don't always think about when they're thinking about sustainability. But if you start really looking towards a sustainable way to produce whatever it is you're producing, you can find really good solutions and you can fix solutions that may or may not have been the most sustainable. So I think as we draw on more new ideas of whether it's producing batteries from whatever new thing we think of in 10 years or even hydrogen and such production. We need to figure out how to do that sustainably so that you're not just ruining the environment that you're trying to fix already with this technology you're talking about. So you can stop me if I'm not making sense whatsoever, but I was reading about the 80-20 rule. It's very, very general, but basically the premise is that 80% of the output is a result of only 20% of the input. So to me, in this sense, I was wondering if there is only a small cause that leads to the majority of these greenhouse gas emissions. What does the market look like? Is there one thing that causes the majority of it or is it you know, more spread out? So like when I was saying transportation, 14% of emissions, mm-hmm. if you want to look at like steel or concrete manufacturing, you're talking about most of your emissions. It's a lot harder to draw some of those guys down. You also have different players who are generally the bigger industry markets there who don't necessarily see the incentive to choose sustainable methods to produce those things. It does require global cooperation to be able to fully draw down those markets, but I also would say that it doesn't mean that the industry players who are willing to draw down GHG emissions shouldn't draw them down just because someone else is doing something bad somewhere else. That's just not our problem. It is our problem, but maybe we can't affect change there, but we can't affect change somewhere else. That means you should still do that other thing, whatever it is. Do you see there being any incentive to change in those other areas in, in the future? How can we make an impact in from the steel production side? Yeah, it can be a little rough. Um, (laughs) um, but there are players who are really starting to think of ways to help reduce GHG emissions there there's one interesting fuel producer called Lonzatech who can use waste gas from like fuel production to produce fuels so 
even though those steel mills are not great things to be having going on, at least if you can pull the gases off that are coming from those mills, you're not allowing them to do as bad as they could do. That is a good thing. And generally, I don't think we're going to shut down all those steel mills. So cool. Yeah. (laughs) Very resourceful. So based on this conversation on there, unfortunately being this perceived upper limit to pushing the envelope right now. So let's talk a little bit about limitations to some extent. So what are the current limitations that exist in the renewable energy space that are materials related? And how have these limitations hindered the mass adoption of renewable energy solutions, either you know biomass, biofuel, or biogas? Right. So general limitations for biofuels and such is that they cost more than your petroleum equivalents. It's the same thing with plastics and other things that are being, you're trying to switch from a petroleum-based thing to a new technology. Generally, that new technology is always going to cost more today than your petroleum assets that have been depreciating since the 80s, if not longer. So there is always kind of that financial issue there. However, that's the point of carbon markets. Maybe not the only point of carbon markets, but it's one of the bigger points of a carbon market is that you can then leverage the environmental benefits to be able to create an on-par financial choice for someone. And generally, people will choose the better environmental thing if it costs the same, if they know it costs the same, if, if they know it's better environmentally. I think part of the problem is that people don't always know what it means to be better environmentally either, and whether that's described accurately. There's a lot of, I don't know, like when I talk to my friends who say they're into biofuels, they have no idea what that means. They have never bought a biofuel in their life, maybe some ethanol, but that's about it. So, <laughs> so like, it's hard for to really focus on specific consumers and getting them to make that change directly. I think it's a little easier sometimes in the material space because if you are going to buy a bottle of Coca-Cola or you know, whatever it is, and it says that it's 50% bio-based plastic, then your basic consumer can make that decision up front with fuels like if you tell someone that their plane ticket's going to be an extra couple dollars because it has some biofuel in it they're going to not spend a couple dollars because <laughs> basic consumers but in the sense of you see this as less being of an efficiency issue of a biofuel compared to a petroleum-based fuel purely in like the thermodynamic efficiency side of it that's less the issue it's more purely a cost constraint that you're seeing as being the main hindrance is stopping this mass adoption Right. So your hydrocarbons are literally the same molecules that right. your petroleum Absolutely. equivalents are. So from energy efficiency, you're sometimes better actually some with your biofuels because they're that specific molecule every time. Whereas your petroleum based, you're cutting something up and trying to fit things in certain spots. Whereas the biofuel, we built it up to make this one thing. And that's the only thing that's in there. There's nothing else that kind of came along with it. So it's a little easier to be insured by the energy density and such of those fuels, let alone all of the other specs that are going along with those fuels, like freeze points. All of those are more consistent because it's a single molecule. It's not kind of jumble of stuff. I didn't realize that there was actually potential and upside uh, increased efficiency from the petroleum baseline. That's really fascinating. Yeah, there is. Uh, generally, you have a slightly higher energy density for like sustainable aviation fuel than you do for petroleum jet fuel. So aside from that, also you've spoken to this point about the biofuels producing a closed loop cycle. And in the case of using more sustainable farming practices, potentially making that 
cycle not only closed, but perhaps slightly negative. But unfortunately, at the end of the day, the biofuel is still going to produce CO2 when it's combusted to produce a, a greenhouse gas. So how, in terms of the calculus for the improvement in the environment, how does that get reconciled for in terms of the issue itself, in terms of GHG emissions? Right. So any biofuel producer today that's worth anything will have a life cycle analysis be done. So that life cycle analysis is where the carbon's coming from and how it's then being converted. So all of the inputs for production of whatever it is. So natural gas usage, water usage, pesticides on field, land use change, if there is any, all of those different inputs for producing that fuel. And then the final combustion of said fuel are taken into the life cycle analysis. And then that's generally compared to the fossil comparator. So you know that you're actually doing something better than what the fossil fuel would be doing on its own. So combustion and everything is taken through in that life cycle analysis. And even then, you can actually still have a negative biofuel that's possible. So if your jet fuel is like 83 grams of CO2 per megajoule, you can have a biofuel that's two or negative or could be 50. But you can actually get to fully negative fuels, which means you can still keep producing all of your fossil fuels and whoever's then combusting the biofuel is doing even better and offsetting someone else's fossil fuel, theoretically. That's really incredible. But I mean, of course, the obvious goal at the end of the day is let's eventually scrap all the fossil fuels and go totally to the biofuel side of things. Right. Yeah. In the ideal world. All carbon negative biofuels, that'd be a lot better because then you wouldn't have to offset anyone. Right. Absolutely. (laughs) that kind of starts to play into how you deal with some of your bad producers that you're talking about. Sure. You can't change what they're doing, but if you are consistently doing even better, then you're offsetting whatever they're doing and doesn't require them to change. Right. And hopefully eventually the economics of it will flip in favor of adopting all these renewable practices just because it's not only good for the environment because that's a great consideration, something that needs to be taken into account, but also that it's just so much better for business too. Do you see that being feasible to go completely offset, go carbon negative? And if so, how far away are we? It's fully feasible to go carbon negative with every single fuel that you produce today if you really wanted to. To be able to do that, that would cost a good amount of money and (laughs) jet fuel is real cheap right now. Probably not going to happen right away, but it is possible. I mean, you have a lot of different options today that are around from producing renewable electricity, but also all of your liquid fuels. So there are ways to do it and that doesn't require people to change all of their things. It's the same thing with cars. You wouldn't require people to change cars to use these renewable fuels in said vehicle. You're not assuming that everyone's going to go buy an electric car tomorrow. Some people will, and that's good. (laughs) That's cool as long as they're filling it with low carbon uh, electricity, but not everyone's going to do that. So that means that you can still fix those ones with a liquid fuel that's dropping today. Yeah, you can do it. If you want to. That's very good to hear. (laughs) Yes, it's reassuring. (laughs) So from the more global standpoint, jumping into the manufacturing side of things, because we touched on this a little bit earlier, but, you know, in the United States and in much of the developed world, we see an extensive amount of outsourcing of lower level manufacturing processing, which still contributes to greenhouse gas emissions. And if I'm wrong, just feel free to correct me. But from the systems thinking standpoint, this seems to be more of a form of local optimization instead of a global optimization. 
And so it seems to me like we're moving kind of the problem to another area in the world, which may look good on paper for us, but not necessarily for the overarching issue. So do you think that observation is correct? And you know, if so, can material science be used to develop globally sustainable solutions instead of just local optimization? Right. So many people who's producing a biofuel today will get certified through different kind of sustainability certification bodies. One is ISCC that we have, as well as RSB is another one, Roundtable and Sustainable Biomaterials. So when you do those certifications, you go through every single step of your production process, wherever it is in the world. So mm -hmm. there are people who are producing sustainable palm oil in Indonesia, and they have to check that every single one of those palm plantations did not come up from someone burning a bunch of peatland to produce palm trees because that's awful for the environment. Mm -hmm. But they're actually going through and checking it, even though that palm oil is then being moved to a facility where it's just cracked to make renewable diesel. They still have to go all the way back to Indonesia to see where they got it, where, how it was made. So there are ways to fully track that. Another part of that is kind of blockchain and being able to trace exactly where something came from. And because it's immutable, you can't fraud it. You can't say that you had magically two tons of used cooking oil that came from the Wendy's down the street that also seems to be the same cooking oil that came from this burned peatland in Indonesia. You, seems sketchy. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, it, there's a lot of incentive for fraud and especially like mm. used cooking oil systems. So there are ways to track that accurately and immutably so that people can't do those sketchy practices. So I would say that there are sustainable ways to do agriculture and such, any feedstock production really, that can be done anywhere in the world. And any fuel producer should be tracking what that is. And as we move forward with more and more demand for biofuels and whatever else, that's going to be more people are going to ask where it came from and they're going to want to see exactly how it got there, which will help make sure that those are actually produced sustainably and ethically and all of those points. So a quick follow-up to that. So we hear the term blockchain a lot thrown around in sort of the computer science sphere of things. But in terms of what you're proposing here with blockchain sort of as a means or paradigm to verify the sustainability of practices to produce kind of anything, what are you getting to there? What do you mean by that? Yeah, so our system is called Verity Tracking. So it is a blockchain system. And the purpose of what we're doing is that if I say that our farmer is doing no-till corn production, I can prove that my farmer is doing no-till corn production because I can track all the way back from the fuel going to a wing of a plane to the actual farmer. I can show you Sean, his farm, and I can show you his strip-till planter. I can like literally show you that piece of paper all the way to the wing of the plane where the fuel is being onboarded. So without blockchain, that's really hard to track logistically exactly how that fuel got there, how the corn was produced, what year that corn was produced, what actually was on field for that corn. So like nitrogen usage, water, all of that stuff. Blockchain is just enabling the ability to track those systems in a way that's so detailed that you, you can see pretty much whatever you wanted to know about the fuel, its production, where it went, how it got there. All of the information, which is in the end of the day, that is what your sustainable claim is. It's how it got there, how it was made, who touched it, that sort of stuff. So yeah, it's just really enabling tracking, which is all it's blockchain has been used for financial markets too. It's just making sure that whatever you're saying is happening is actually happening and having a record of it. That's immutable. You can't fraud it. It's 
is what it is. Yeah. So fundamentally, it's that same concept of verification. And the way you're describing it, it certainly sounds like that's a key component in terms of doing this calculus for this life cycle analysis to determine either that, you know, carbon neutrality or ideally that carbon and carbon negative outcome. So yeah, it's not something I'd heard of in this space. So that's, that's awesome. So your Jivo's tracking software in that process seems very extensive. Is that mandatory or is that the, is that required for all companies, all manufacturers? No, by no means is it is not required. However, there has been a good amount of fraud that has happened historically, especially in the renewable diesel market mm-hmm. that's made this seem worth it to us and for us to be willing to set a higher bar for these markets. If you're going to claim something sustainable and something's better for the environment, you need to be able to back that claim. So I guess outside of the sustainable companies, it seems like it would be a good idea if that tracking software was implemented for you know, steel manufacturers just to see exactly what processes cause the most emissions. Do you see that being something that the government starts to require for you know, companies worldwide or nationwide? It seems like a good way to create data-driven solutions. Yeah, that's a really good question. I would say that, yes, that I think where the world is going, there's more and more emphasis being made on ESG for stocks and such. So that environmental social governance pieces and how investors are actually putting their money in places, which means there's incentive for people to be able to back those metrics. And at the end of the day, those are just metrics, but Mm -hmm. someone has to verify it somewhere. And It can be done pretty simply with blockchain. The same thing if you're saying that you're putting money towards a carbon offset somewhere, how do you really know that that's going to a carbon offset that you thought it was going to, not someone's paycheck, you know? If you want to be able to know that you actually made a change, not that they just told you they made a change, that can be anything. So to talk a little bit more about this whole paradigm shift, you know, we're all engineers here and, and Puneeth and I are both finishing up school and in both our classes and, and in our jobs, we're encouraged a lot to think about, you know, the cost of materials, the, the properties of materials and, and the ease of manufacturing. But really, there seems to be the emphasis, I feel like it's somewhat shifted recently, but it tends to be seldom on the potential impact of materials and sourcing this whole thing on the environment. So do you have any thoughts on how material sustainability can be better emphasized in the classroom and as well as the workplace and how to better create that emphasis throughout the whole education cycle. I think it can definitely be spoken to a lot more. I know back when I was in college, it really wasn't talked about at all. It's really just driving that change for people to think about why, why you're manufacturing something, why you wanted to do that thing, and what you want to leave behind when you're doing that thing. So if you're going to absolutely destroy the environment to make, I don't know, something that's supposed to be helpful to the environment. That's not, obviously your overall picture is not helpful. So I think one of the major things that will start to come up is investors are starting to look a lot more at this. So they're not going to be willing to get onto projects that look like they are not actually fully beneficial to the environment socially and all of those things. But it does start with people starting to ask those questions and saying, is this helpful or is this not helpful? What are the different repercussions that can have that can happen when you start producing something this way? Or even if you decide that you want to have a manu- manufacturing plant in a specific area of the world that already has whatever it is, if high corruption rates, high poverty rates, food security issues, 
you then need to be willing to address those issues when you're going through the planning and designing of whatever that process is. And I think it will start to come up more and more as people realize that this is necessary to be able to continue to build all of these things and actually continue to live in the world. But it just really starts with people being willing to ask those kind of hard questions sometimes. I almost feel like there should be a required class for, you know, sustainability, especially in these engineering majors. You know, I don't think it was, you can correct me if I'm wrong, Tom, but I don't think there was any sustainability classes. But I feel like if we're talking about the stuff that you're talking about, that would really open up all our minds about exactly what we're doing and how it affects the environment. Yeah, I think that would be really beneficial to be really pushing sustainability. I know we had like ethics classes, but I think you can really push the same way with sustainability. If you're making ethical decisions, those would also be sustainable. So on another note, what is an area of the renewable energy space that you think is currently not seeing enough attention or not significant enough development? So sustainable aviation fuel, I said there are like maybe four players today. That's really (laughs) not that many for how much volume of sustainable aviation fuel you would need to offset all of the jet fuel in the world. So I would like to see more people looking at it and seeing the options that are actually available today. I think it's starting to kind of get some headwind, but it hasn't been anything like the electricity sector in California or even renewable diesel. So I think If you start to look at sustainable aviation fuel the way that people have looked at renewable diesel, you would easily see huge leaps and changes happening today with what's actually being flown, which could make a huge difference globally for GHG emissions. From the MSE standpoint, do you see where material science could potentially play a role in all this and, you know, lead to drastic improvements in the future? Yeah, I mean, so when you, especially airplanes and such, there's lots of different pieces of that that can make planes more efficient and everything to be able to then need less fuel or be able to go further with less fuel, however you want to think of it. And all of those things working together are really the only way that we can solve these problems, whether it's making planes lighter or using different materials to be able to make the plane lighter or using a biomaterial in place of a petroleum-based plastic. I think there's yeah, a plethora of, of options that can be done that I think will start to take effect. I know for the airplane stuff, ICAO's Corsia is just an offsetting mechanism. So any kind of carbon offset that you can possibly think of is theoretically possible in their carbon offsetting scheme. So it could be literally anything of bioplastics to sustainable aviation. What was this offsetting mechanism you're referring to? So ICAO, the International Civil Aviation Organization, is the one, they're the group who chooses, who defines all of the SARPs, so all of the practices that international aviation airlines have to do so that they can talk to each other. So they're they're the ones who also do control towers and stuff so that like a plane from Germany is able to land in America, that sort of thing. But they also have this section called Corsia, which is It's carbon offsetting scheme. They chose to enact that. That's already part of ICAO today. And you can offset, as an international airline, you can offset your carbon through using sustainable aviation fuel, or you can, you know, petition to do something else or buy carbon credits theoretically. So that is a thing today that's happening, but it's just in its pilot period. So it's not very well off yet. I mean, it's just starting. So bottom line for us, 
So if our listeners could take away three things from this conversation about the role of sustainable biofuels in the future of having a sustainable planet and dramatically reducing greenhouse gas emissions, what would those three things be? So I would say that one, carbon negative fuels are a possibility and should be really thought of as the next wave of liquid fuels and how we transport ourselves. And two, that we shouldn't just be worried about a single sector of GHG emissions. So we shouldn't only be worried about sustainable aviation fuel. You should also be worried about agriculture if you're using a biomass to produce said fuel. You should also be worried about other transportation fuels. You shouldn't only silo yourself into a single problem because at the end of the day, there's a lot of different issues that are interplayed together. And then three, just the need for people to be willing to make those changes today rather than always hoping for some magical thing in the future that's going to fix everything. There are sustainable good practices that are happening today that will make a difference. Maybe it's not the huge differences that will happen in 10 years, but they're good differences. And I think that should really just be, people should be more willing to go for it for what we can do today and still be excited about all the things that are going to happen in the future. But yeah, not be worried about seeing what we can do today. A quick follow-up to that for everyone who's going to hear this episode. So what are those, you know, maybe list a, a few of those things that people can be doing right now, either in terms of their shopping habits or maybe the airlines they fly or the cars they buy. What are some of those things that you can, that you see individual consumers being able to change over in their behaviors that when added in summation, if everyone and all the people we knew made those differences would make a significant impact in the world? Yeah. So, I mean, as a basic consumer, encouraging yourself to use those products that are environmentally more sustainable. So whether it's a bioplastic, not using single-use plastics as much as possible, choosing airlines that have specifically shown that they are willing to buy actual volumes of sustainable aviation fuel. Like we have a big contract with Delta. Those choices can make a really big difference today. And if those big players know that your consumers are willing to choose that, whatever it is, if you're going to choose Delta over someone else, because you know that they have bought sustainable aviation fuel, then that pushes your other players in that market to do the same thing to get those consumers to choose them instead. So yeah, just being willing to take the leap and say, yeah, I'm willing to make that choice rather than the other choice there. It still got me to, you know, Pensacola or wherever I was trying to fly to. So <laughs> no, I mean, that's great to hear Delta's being good through this because I live in Atlanta. So like <laughs> Delta's kind of like religion if you're flying out of the city. Um, <laughs> so that's good to hear for sure. So how can our listeners reach out to you and find you after they finish up with this episode? Yeah, so you're welcome to find me on LinkedIn, Karen O'Brien, and I work for Gevo, G-E-V-O, Inc. We're not a huge company, so I'm sure you'll be able to find it. Yeah, and if you have any questions, I'm happy to answer them. Biofuel stuff, whatever it is, engineering stuff, whatever. Well, thank you so much, Karen, for joining us on this episode. I certainly learned a lot. I didn't even, I just really learned a lot about this space. I think, you know, especially with both of us having a good amount of exposure to the aviation space, being able to hear about how sustainability can be pushed further in that area is, is really promising. So thank you for your time and thank you for all of your insights. Yeah, I was happy to join. This was really fun. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the It's a Material World podcast. We will look forward to releasing our next episode in two weeks. But until then, if you want to hear from us, we're on LinkedIn, Twitter, YouTube, and Instagram. 
search for us as It's a Material Worlds Podcast. Links to our social media sites will also be in the show notes. If you have any feedback, we'd love to hear it. We're just two college students looking to get started with a podcast, and we want to grow the show with our community's input. You can send us feedback through messaging on any of our social media sites. Feel free to also provide feedback by messaging us directly on LinkedIn, either to Punithu Padia or Thomas Miller. But until then, take care and stay healthy.